Hello and welcome to episode 13 of the Commonweal Policy Podcast. I'm Dr. Craig DL, Head of Policy and Research at Commonweal, and I'm joined once again by Ellen Hofer, the Creative Director for EU Citizens for Independent Scotland. Hello. Um, as frequent listeners of the podcast will know, this podcast is here to help educate people about the policy papers in Commonweal's extensive library. Um, this week we're going to be talking about immigration post-Brexit, but we're also going to be talking about some of the implications of Brexit on the rights of people who choose to live in Scotland. So our paper, published in 2017, um, looked at trying to find a way of giving Scotland a devolved immigration um, system. Now, this has been in the news this week, where there was a debate in Westminster at the SNP's uh, Opposition Day debate, where the Parliament unanimously agreed that uh, Scotland should have uh, these, uh, uh, these these rights extended to Scotland, albeit on a Parliament that was almost entirely empty and mostly filled with SNP members. Um, one nation, isn't it? Lead, don't leave. Yeah. <laughs> so our paper um, proposes that Scotland should have these powers and proposes a few mechanisms for how these could be delivered. Um, one inspiration is the way that Immigration has devolved to Quebec in Canada, where they essentially have a roughly a points-based system for immigration. But in Quebec, the local government there can decide how those points are allocated and what priorities they, they want to push forward. One of the key points in this paper, however, is a bit more fundamental than this, not just choosing how people come to Scotland, but what rights they are given when they, they come here. And one of the critical things, one of the critical breaks that Scotland needs to do from the UK system is to extend the, the suite of basic universal rights to everybody who lives here. Now, our paper um, looks specifically in regard to refugees and asylum seekers on this. This is a, a, a group of people who are always particularly vulnerable. The paper recommends that, that just the basic right to work is extended to this group of people, but also that the full suite of, of rights is, uh, is delivered to everybody resident in Scotland, and that should include the right to vote. And this is something that has also come up this week and has had particular resonance for you, Ellen, in, in regard to Brexit. Yeah, so since the Brexit vote, uh, it's been an ongoing topic and something that became increasingly important to our organisation. We weren't entirely sure, uh, given the promises, even of the Brexiteers at the time of campaigning, um, it was it was meant to not have an impact on our lives whatsoever. Mm. EU citizens living in the UK would suffer no negative consequences for Brexit. That very quickly changed, and our voting rights were the first thing that was um, basically axed, and axed on a UK-wide level. Interestingly, because Scotland has devolved powers over the voting franchise, uh, this left it up to Scotland mm. to re-extend a vote that had been axed on a UK-wide level. And it's taken, well, basically three years now since the Brexit referendum to get to a clearer position. Uh, that's not, not to say that it's already mm. true. We still have to put it through Parliament. But this week, there was an additional voting franchise paper, well, suggestion, 
uh, that is supposed to include not just EU citizens getting their voting rights to vote within Scotland be extended, but also extending it to refugees and asylum seekers, basically most residents of Scotland. And uh, there's a really quite funny, I think we'll come back to this, yeah. uh, a wee side section about prisoners' voting rights, which seems to be something that held up this entire paper for, for quite some time. Um, but yeah, it's it's an interesting development and a positive one. What are your thoughts? So, well, just to unpick this uh, a, a little in a little more detail for folk who understandably aren't completely immersed in the the, the politics of voting rights, like we geeks are, uh, under EU law, EU citizens have the right to vote in local elections in um, in any EU country where they, they reside. What this meant in the UK was that EU citizens couldn't vote in a UK general election, but you could vote in a Scottish election, you could vote in a uh, a local council election, and you could vote in the independence referendum. But because of Brexit, those rights disappear. So it would just be the, the UK franchise that would cover all elections in the UK, um, at UK level and downwards. And it's been up to, as you say, Scotland to try and re-extend those rights. Um, it is interesting that we've had two bills <laughs> that have done this to a certain degree in the last few weeks. The first one was the referendums bill that we spoke about on the podcast uh, recently. And that extended the voting franchise to all EU citizens. But it only went that far. It only re-extended those rights to that you had pre-Brexit for the purposes of referendum that didn't touch um, local council elections or Scottish elections. So we then had the electoral franchise bill, which has just, just come in, and will now start to make that slow and winding process through the Parliament that, that extends that, re-extends your voting rights to all of those previous elections, although you still won't be able to vote in UK general elections. But this is this is on par with all of the EU countries. Any yeah. migrant that doesn't hold citizenship of a certain country isn't able to participate in general elections. Yeah. And though personally I have different feelings about this, um, it's obviously something that is on par with European. Yeah, and it also affects your ability to stand Definitely. in these elections, especially now that this the voting franchise bill that came this week kind of extends more rights to third country nationals, refugees and asylum seekers and basically saying they're also able to stand for elections, yeah. which isn't covered by the referendum. Yeah, so we now have a situation of the referendums bill in that regards already possibly obsolete. I would or say so. if both of them pass, potentially you could have a slightly perverse situation where the referendums bill is offers weaker rights to 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 for an independence referendum than it would for a Scottish election. I don't think that'll happen, and I know, in fact, the Scottish Greens have already put an amendment in to the referendum bill to bring that on par with the, the franchise bill. So I don't think that's going to happen. Well, this paper is generally a bit unfortunate. Uh, we, we kind of hinted towards it earlier, but the, the other chapter that is dealing with non-British nationals uh, is about prisoners' voting rights, and from from what we hear, the hearsay is that prisoners' voting rights has been such a contentious issue yeah. that it's held up this entire paper about re-extending and extending voting franchise in general across Scotland. But at the same time as this paper 
by this suggestion has been made. Uh, another very interesting headline has come across. Yeah, well, it's worth talking about the prisoner rights, actually, in a bit more detail. This is, the, the, the Scottish government has been trying to consult over the last several years uh, on extending the franchise to prisoners. Um, the UN and the EU have condemned the UK and Scotland in particular for not giving prisoners a vote. Uh, and in fact, most countries in Europe allow prisoner voting to a greater or lesser extent. I know the case in Germany, for instance, all prisoners can vote unless they have been convicted of a crime such as treason or subversion of the state. Um, in many other countries, the, the right to vote is kept unless you're sentenced to X number of years or more, or again, for particularly crime, particular crimes like treason. Mm. Um, it's Scotland is particularly bad in this regard, and the SNP have been particularly resistant to, to, to open up in the way and just bring Scotland up to the standard of a normal European country. Uh, but it's slowly being dragged there. And so the, the actual text that is contained yeah. within this franchise bill um, basically said that prisoners who have been ordered to sentences of less than 12 months should retain their voting rights so for them it shouldn't be a problem to vote. Yeah and that's a, in my opinion quite a marginal change it's a it's a positive step but it doesn't give you anywhere near the same rights as again as say, many other European countries but then the twist comes <laughs> with uh, a ruling just yesterday saying that now in Scotland uh, again a motion passed in the, the Scottish Parliament to presume against sentencing prisoners to less than 12 months. So judges will now be told that unless there is absolutely no other option, uh, a sentence that would carry a sentence of up to 12 months should now carry a different sentence, a non-custodial sentence. It's a bit of a semantic issue here, but it now means that if those both if both of those those rules end up in the legislation, again almost no prisoners would be able to vote in Scotland. Again, it's a very semantic issue. What you're doing here is you, instead of having someone in prison allowed to vote, you now have someone who has not gone to prison still allowed to vote. Yeah. So it's not changing the total number of voters per se, but... You're also not really extending prisoners' voting rights. Yes. But it's, a, it's an interesting new exercise in how to not extend voting rights. Yeah. <laughs> no, now, I mean, there will still be people asked to carry out sentences, custodial sentences, of less than 12 months, but it's supposed to be very few. Yeah. Um, I think generally the numbers here are, are interesting. If we talk about prisoners' voting rights, a very, very small part of the Scottish population, of the, of the overall population, is actually prisoners. Yeah. One of the arguments that should and could be made for prison extending rights, voting rights to prisoners, is that a healthy democracy should be able to absorb that level um, of democratic participation, even from people that might be considered unpleasant or unwelcome as part of democracy, it should be able to absorb and to, to deal with these voting rights instead of not extending them in the first place. For me, I think prisoner rights to vote and uh, the right to vote for refugees and asylum seekers and other vulnerable groups are, are linked in a very fundamental way. Mm -hmm. And that if you take a group of people 
influenced by the politics, affected by the politics of a country, but who cannot influence the politics of a country, that is a very dangerous situation to be in democratically. Absolutely. It actually applies for any group um, yeah. whose voting rights are either being removed or are in question. Any any group whatsoever, it could be blue-eyed people or people with two children or whatever, whoever you remove democratic franchise from becomes a very vulnerable group because politicians then have to not answer to those people anymore and yeah. don't have to consider them democratically either. Not just not answer to them, they you then make them the outgroup, the them against which all the sins of society can be landed upon and history is littered with examples of that going very, very bad, very quickly. Well, yes, and very recent history too. I mean, yeah. if, if we remember the Brexit referendum, EU citizens were excluded from voting even before they had set a date for the referendum. That's how quickly you can become disenfranchised, even though there was no reason whatsoever. This wasn't a general election, so there was no reason whatsoever yeah. to exclude EU citizens. Some might argue it might have been prudent to include us since we make up part of, of this country and its population. And uh, the group of people probably most directly affected by the EU referendum? I mean, us yeah. and then our British equivalents over in the, in the European mainland who in many cases have lost their voting rights yeah. too after 15 years of absence. Apparently, you're not able to participate in UK elections anymore. If it's something that impacts your life in such a very direct way, uh, for me, there's no doubt that they should have been allowed to participate. Yeah. So those interesting linkages between policies, shall we say, I, I'm willing to accept that maybe this is just a series of policies that have come through that haven't quite been completely joined up. Where you land on that spectrum might just tell you how cynical you are about today's politics. I don't know. <laughs> Um, but let's say, let's give the Scottish Government the benefit of the doubt. This is just a, a, an interesting side issue. And we are going to get the extension of voting rights to a lot more people who are currently disenfranchised in Scotland. And this is going to affect the next Scottish election. This is going to affect any upcoming referendums. How do you feel about this? How do you think this changes the character of campaigning in Scotland? I think it's going to be really, really interesting. Um, it's important. It's something that I've spent my last three years intensively campaigning about, lobbying for. We often face the issue of uh, kind of being asked if we're playing off different migrant groups against one another. And uh, I, I'm quite cynical about that. The fact that there's now two different uh, voting franchise bills um, is it's not up to the, the groups, but up to the governments introducing these laws. I think in terms of campaigning, though, we are all going to have to step up. If, yeah. if this means, if the second franchise bill that doesn't deal with EU citizens, but with third country nationals, refugees and asylum seekers and prisoners, um, I think the national round with a headline of about 50,000 people that haven't been yeah. previously allowed to vote in Scotland, that's quite a significant portion. It's not huge but it's a significant portion of people who will not have voted here before who needs, um, who needs to be included and to be, rather than disenfranchised, they need franchised and yeah. um, to be included in what we're doing in terms of campaigning efforts. So it's, I think it's a significant step. And aside from all of this, if you look outside of this from a European context, Scotland is really 
fighting a new path that should be a guiding light to other countries to also extend these sort of local regional voting rights to people that currently don't hold them. Yeah, as you say, it's the it's the norm in the EU that um, EU, non-national EU citizens can vote in local elections, but not in the national elections. If Scotland became independent after this electoral franchise bill came in, and if Scotland became an EU member, then do you think there's a the, there's a, an opportunity there for Scotland to be to be a guiding light and allow EU nationals to keep their vote in the Scottish Parliament, which would now be the national general election. Absolutely. I think it would at least be worth considering. And I think Scotland is already making headway in, in terms of that. I mean, there's there's been more and more news, especially in the last four years, you, you start seeing social media posts about this or that policy that the Scottish government has fought for that are going around the world. Scotland is starting to make waves in that way and can really proudly consider itself a European thinking and acting nation sometimes more European than the Europeans that pat themselves on the shoulder and say, look, we're, we're the most progressive kind of, you know, union of states that, that is around. Um, yeah, I think Scotland's got pretty, pretty great traction at the minute and is going in the right direction, but it's one of the people who is affected directly by being now being a minority group. I'm also still quite cynical for how long it's taken to get to this mm. point, for how the bill is introduced, how the prisoners' voting rights are then playing off against the, the new plan for not giving sentences that even include the prisoners' voting rights that we now finally manage to put into words. It's it's all, if you talk about the state of your own cynicism, I, apparently I'm pretty high up there at this point. Um. Yes. So on the practical side of things, we now have, as you say, potentially 50,000 people who possibly have never voted in Scotland. What's the practical steps that people can be doing now? Do we need an education campaign? Do we need some campaign to you know, start getting folk registered or getting folk aware of what voting means in Scotland? I guess there's quite a lot to be done, especially since the independence referendum in 2014 the voting registration laws have changed and now it's not possible to sign up a group of people in the name of one person but each person has to sign up individually that also means that not just eu nationals and other foreigners have fallen off the voting register no it means that quite a large portion of the voters that are for now british passport holders yeah. um, have fallen off the voting register so if i was out there going campaigning if i was you know, talking to my friends, one of the things that I would always have in my pocket or on my stall would be a voter registration form. Uh, if the intention of the Scottish government to extend the voting franchise to almost everyone does come true, and it would be prudent to assume that it might, yeah. um, then sign everyone up, absolutely everyone up to vote as long as you can for, you know, for, for the time being. And if they don't have the voting rights by the time that referendums or elections come around, that's a whole different issue. But we'd rather have people registered than not, in terms of EU citizens, not being on the voting register also means that there's a potential lowering of their um, credit rating, which is a huge issue and particularly affects the areas of the UK that don't extend or want to extend the voting franchise again. There's people out there who have mortgages and who's 
whose credit rating is going to be significantly impacted by not being on the voting register. So let's all take the opportunity. This is this is true for all of us. Our credit yeah. ratings are connected to our being on the electoral register. I remember back in twenty fourteen when I was doing the get out the vote on the actually on the morning of the referendum, and I I was in uh, a housing estate not far from where I live. And I met a family there, this young lass, early 20s. She hadn't really paid attention to politics, even that late in the campaign. But on the doorstep, talking to her, engaging with the issues, she became really enthusiastic. And I asked her, are you registered to vote? And she said, no. Can I? Can I go down to the station and register and then vote? And I had to tell her, no, the deadline's already passed. So that was heartbreaking to me. <laughs> That we had someone who was ready to vote, had made up their mind, but couldn't. Um, to me, I, I think there's another extension here that we need to reform the way that the voter registration happens. I was just about to bring that up. Yeah, so maybe we need to think about, you know, why do we have this six-week deadline before between registration and voting? Can we come up with some sort of system, like they do in some parts of America, where you can have on-the-day voting? You can take relevant ID down to the post down to the polling station, prove your address, prove your ID, and register on the spot, and then cast your vote. And um, don't know how you think about that, but I think you know, Scotland should maybe explore this. It makes total sense to me. I think it kind of, it's one of those where the entire system around the signing up to vote was changed based on the assumption that there was so much fraud going on within the elections, and it turned out that the fraud that I think at the time it was the Tories specifically shouting about this was less than zero point zero one percent or something. Yeah, electoral fraud in the UK is measured in the tens or dozens of votes across the entire country at a general election level. It's, it's essentially just not even a rounding error. Uh, it's ridiculous. Uh, an absolute non-point that changed of a huge, well, of course, a huge change in law. So similarly, this is one of the things where I think people can easily jump onto the fraud bandwagon, but there isn't really any evidence. Um, it would be much more convenient for voters to be able to do this. I think a very recent example of why these kind of schemes don't work is the EU elections and EU nationals being asked to fill out an additional form yeah. um, to send this form in. We, we, I mean, the UK wasn't even sure six weeks earlier that it was still got to be part of Europe and only by the skin of his teeth scraped by with an extension from the EU and then participated in these elections. But EU nationals were then supposed to already know and have filled out this form, sent it away, also be registered on it. On it. It, it was a nightmare. And within, I think it was like a week before the elections, only 200 EU nationals had actually sent them on, on a UK-wide level um, with over 3 million EU Just nationals. 200. Just two hundred. Wow. So, I think there there may still be an investigation into what happened there. But yes, you're talking the possible disenfranchisement of almost three million people. Mm. That should be a major mark of shame for the UK. That's the second time it's happened. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> and it's only this time we really noticed because suddenly Europe's an interesting topic for British people. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, that's potentially another trap that Scotland should definitely avoid trying to fall down. Yeah, uh, a more spontaneous approach to being able to, to register for elections and for multiple occasions is obviously a sensible approach. Um, 
especially if we're, if we're trying to, we know that there's a debate going on about whether voting should be mandatory or not. And you and I have discussed this several times in the past and yeah. ended up on a, on a joint position though. Yeah, my, my feeling on mandatory voting is the freedom to vote has to come with the freedom to abstain. I don't agree with people who do abstain. I would much rather they went down to the ballot box and spoiled their ballot in a humanist way, uh, if necessary. Or I'd, I'd quite like to see a none of the above or a uh, option on, on the ballot paper. But if none of the above won, then the election should be rerun. I'd like all of those options, you know, other than forcing people to vote. Um, but yeah, yeah. I I kind of I come around to your point of of view. So as somebody who has been disenfranchised democratically, um, and as a woman, I find it very hard to see people squandering their their civil responsibilities and opportunities to participate in democracy. But I see your point, and I don't think people should be forced. But there. We, we still have a long way to go when it comes to electoral reform in many, many ways. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the turnout issue in too many elections is, uh, is still a major problem when, you know, 30% of the people turn out. Then this, is, this, more than anything else, is why you end up with extreme politicians, because the extreme politician can galvanise 5 or 10% of a vote. Exactly. And when 30% of the 30% who turn out and then end up winning a seat based on that. Yep. Whereas if we got a much higher turnout, you end up with 60 or 80%, these demagogues can't get that support and can't get the, the foothold and power. You need to start dismantling the democratic structures of a state. Yeah, I think this, this is one of the aspects where I think a mandatory vote would probably level the field also for candidates who aren't necessarily extroverted populists mm. <laughs> um, those will be by default the ones that find it easier to campaign but if, if you have to give your vote to somebody who will be considering their policies then this would probably open the field to a different kind of politician too that doesn't have to go and get the, the vote out the vote is going to be there you have to convince them based on practicality that or we end up with emperor aaron Adwork. <laughs> at the top, who ended up at the top of the ballot paper. <laughs> so, on that note, I think we've covered a fair amount in this uh, issue around voting and voters' rights and everything that goes around with it. Um, is there anything else you'd like to add, finally? I don't think there's any other final words other than, you know, if, okay. if you remove the voting rights from one group, you're endangering all groups. And yeah. in the same way, extending voting rights, the more you extend them, the more democracy you create. That's a good thing. That's a very good point. So, once again, thank you all for listening. And just a reminder that Commonweal, as an organisation, just could not exist without the support of people like you, giving us a fiver or a tenner a month. So if you enjoy the podcast, you want to support the production of more episodes, and you want to support us in our research, producing policy papers on everything from immigration to Green New Deal, which is going to be our big new project over the summer, then please consider a donation in the link in the description. Thank you, and I'll see you next week. Bye.